time of the Passover. And before I go any further, let me go ahead and translate that for our modern American minds. Every one of us knows when the season of Christmas is right around the corner, right? We know that because it's still about 250 degrees outside. We've just celebrated Labor Day. Our kids are just getting back into school and you walk into Target or Costco or, or Walmart and suddenly you're confronted with thousands of Christmas trees and, and decorations everywhere. Like we know when Christmas is about to happen, right? Okay, that's terrible priest humor, but that's... Anyway, maybe, not it's, maybe it's not exactly like that, but here's the point. The point is this. The Israelites knew exactly when the Passover feast was coming, and the Israelites knew exactly what the Passover feast meant. So if you were an Israelite, and as, and as best as we're able to put ourselves in those shoes, we can imagine how immediately their minds would travel back in time. And their minds would go back in time some 1,500 years, 1,500 years. And they would remember how their ancestors lived in slavery in Egypt. And they would recall the many signs and wonders that God had done on their behalf to set them free from this bondage to slavery. The plagues, the plagues and the pestilences that God would rain down from heaven against Pharaoh. How the scriptures say God made the waters stand up like walls in the Red Sea. And the Israelites passed through on the dry land. And how God then caused the water to crash down upon the Egyptians drowning Pharaoh's horses and mighty chariots and delivering the Israelites into freedom. But freedom wasn't quite that simple, was it? God is not given to our modern sense of instant gratification. You see, in between the prison of slavery in Egypt and the promised land of Canaan that was flowing with milk and honey, there was this period of pain. There was a period of pain where the Israelites, according to Exodus 16, they came into this wilderness called sin. And there in that wilderness called sin, the whole community, they began to grumble against Moses. They started to complain against Moses and Aaron, and they said, back in Egypt, we, we may have been in slavery, but at least we had our fill of bread. We may have been in bondage, but at least we had our fill of bread. And, and, and then they continued. They said, but, but you guys, Moses and Aaron, you all had to drag us into this miserable desert. You guys led us into this wilderness called sin so that we could die here of starvation. And then the exclamation point. We think, we think it would have been better if the Lord had just killed us in Egypt. Oh. Wow. And so if you were Andrew or Peter or James or John or Philip, and if you were standing there with Jesus on that day, and if 5,000 hungry people were staring you in the face, well, let's just say the imagery was inescapable. Because as we see in the scriptures, a whole lot of grumbling is going on, and I don't just mean stomachs. Lord, 
Six months of my salary won't feed 5,000 people. There's a boy here, and he's got five loaves and two fish, but what good is that among so many hungry people? And Jesus, he could have said to the 5,000, well, I guess that's that. I guess you guys will have to now fend for yourselves. And God could have said to the Israelites, well, I guess that's that. I guess you guys are just going to die in this wilderness called sin. But here's what Jesus did do. The Bible says, and get this imagery, the Bible says there was a great deal of grass in that place. And so Jesus said to those 5,000 hungry souls, make them sit down in that grass. Do you know what's coming? Can you hear the imagery that's intentionally in John's gospel? Because another image becomes absolutely inescapable. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and He restores my soul. And so then Jesus took those five loaves. He blessed, He broke, and He gave, miraculously feeding the 5,000 that day with 12 baskets full of leftovers. Let nothing go to waste, He would say. And so with all of these things working together, the feeding of the 5,000, the manna in the desert, the 23rd Psalm, all of these imageries and ideas happening right here at this Passover, Jesus is reinforcing this spiritual principle. Where there is pain, God makes provision. Where there is pain, God makes provision. Where there is pain, God makes makes provision. Between the prison of Egypt and the promised land of Canaan, as the Israelites experienced pain, physical pain and spiritual pain, God made provision. Here's what the Bible says. Tell them, tell them, the Lord said to Moses, tell them that in the evening they shall eat quail and I will rain it down from heaven. Tell them that in the morning they shall eat manna and I shall rain it down from heaven. Tell them that they will have their fill of bread so that they may know. So that they may know, the Bible says, that I am the Lord your God. And the Bible says for 40 years, for 40 years, the Israelites would eat this manna. Do you think God was sending them a message about bread from heaven? For 40 years, they would eat this manna until they came to the promised land. And not just for 40 years, right? For 1,500 years, the Israelites continued to eat this manna at the Passover to remind themselves of the spiritual principle that God was establishing in them generation after generation after generation that in between prison and promise where there is pain, God makes provision. God provides The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me along right pathways for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And get this, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So now let's fast forward one year. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and the twelve discovering what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus says to them, I have longed, I have longed to eat this Passover meal with you. And so, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant. It's shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus established this Passover, this new Passover, didn't he? Because he knew. He knew that for the next 40 years, he knew that for the next 1,500 years, he knew that for the next 2,000 years, that in between the prison of sin and death and in between the promise of eternal life, there is much pain, isn't there? We all experience pain in this transitory life. So Jesus makes this new Passover festival, this new feast in the midst of the pain. He prepares the table for us in the presence of our enemies. And this time, He doesn't just rain down manna from heaven. Jesus becomes the manna from heaven. Jesus, who is the bread of life, becomes our bread for life. And that's the spiritual principle today. Jesus, who is the bread of life, becomes our bread for life because where there is pain, God makes provision. Pain is a funny thing, isn't it? Pain can do one of two things in our lives. Pain can either take us away from God or we can allow the pain to draw us closer to God. And when we are in pain, we can become just like the Israelites, can't we? Grumbling against God in our own wilderness called sin. And sometimes, sometimes, I'll speak for myself, sometimes we even beg to go back to the devil or the bondage or the slavery that we know. Lord, I'd rather be dead in slavery than struggle through this wilderness of sin. At least there I had my fill of bread. But my friends, God doesn't want us to be comfortable with slavery. We're not supposed to be comfortable with sin, so God confronts it. God already knows it's a struggle for us to wander through the wilderness called sin. So where there is pain, God makes provision. And Jesus, who is the bread of life, becomes our bread for life. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'll never forget the sermon I saw about this very idea one time. Where this great big African-American pastor, he gets up and he starts talking about goodness and mercy 
And he starts walking around, and I can't do it like he does, but he starts walking around. And he says, wherever I go, there's goodness and mercy, and they're following me around all the days of my life. I go and goodness goes. I go and mercy goes. Where I go, goodness goes. Where I go, mercy goes. Where I wander, goodness goes. Where I struggle, there is mercy. Because where there is pain, God makes provision. And Jesus, who is the bread of life, is our bread for life. You see, my friends, it comes down to this. God is working on this cosmic jailbreak, right? It's this cosmic breaking out of jail to break us free from the stronghold of sin and the power of death. That's the good news of the gospel. It's a cosmic jailbreak, and it's good. And if there's anything in this world that reminds us of that fact, it's right here every Sunday. Jesus Christ offering himself to us again and again in the presence of our enemies, in the body and blood, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the great banquet feast. The bread of life is indeed our bread for life. We've said this many, many times before. This is the place where the veil is the most thin between heaven and earth, where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are duly administered and the faithful in this place are in communion with the faithful all over the world and the angels and the archangels and all the saints who have gone before who sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. So I want to leave us with this very powerful excerpt taken from Father Homer Rogers' book, The Romance of Orthodoxy. He's quoting Don Gregory Dix in his work, The Shape of the Liturgy. He says this, Mankind has found no better thing than this to do, for kings at their crowning or criminals at the scaffold, for armies in triumph or a bride and bridegroom in a country church. Mankind has found no better thing than this to do for the proclamation of dogma or for a good crop of wheat, for the wisdom of parliament in a mighty nation or the sick old woman who's afraid to die. Mankind has found no better thing than this to do for a schoolboy sitting for his examination or for Columbus setting out to discover America. For the famine of a whole province or for the soul of a dead lover. Because the Turks were turned back at the gates of Vienna. For the repentance of Margaret or the settlement of a strike. For the son of a woman who was once barren. For Captain so-and-so wounded in prisoner of war or while the lions roared at the amphitheater. On the beach at Dunkirk while the hiss of the skies brushed through the thick June grass. Tremendously by an old monk on the 50th anniversary of his vows. Furtively by an exiled bishop who had hewn timber in a prison camp. Gorgeously for the canonization of St. Joan of Arc. He says we could fill many, many, many pages with the reasons why mankind has done this. And we would not tell a hundredth of them. To those who know even a little of Christian history, probably the most 
moving of all the reflections is not even through the great events or the well-remembered saints, but of the innumerable millions of entirely obscure yet completely faithful men and women, everyone with his or her own individual hopes and fears, sorrows and loves, sins, temptations and prayers, as alive and as vivid as mine are now, and each one of them believed and pray as I believe and pray, finding it hard at times, growing slack at times, even falling back again at times, each of them finding their thoughts wandering and tired, sometimes heavy and even unresponsive, yet each of them worshiping at the same Eucharist that I do. He concludes with this, It is because it became embedded deep down in the life of the Christian peoples, coloring the life of the ordinary man and woman, marking its personal turning points, marriage, sickness, death, and the rest, running it through year by year with the feasts and the fasts and the rhythms of the Sundays where this new Passover has become woven into our spiritual psyche and our public history. And so best of all, he says, Mankind has no better thing to do than to celebrate this new Passover week by week and month by month on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully, unfailingly, all across the parishes of Christendom. And this last part is simply my own. It is because in between the prison of sin and death and the promise of eternal life, where there is pain, God makes provision. And Jesus, who is the bread of life, becomes our bread for life. Time of the Passover. And before I go any further, let me go ahead and translate that for our modern American minds. Every one of us knows when the season of Christmas is right around the corner, right? We know that because it's still about 250 degrees outside. We've just celebrated Labor Day. Our kids are just getting back into school and you walk into Target or Costco or or Walmart and suddenly you're confronted with thousands of Christmas trees and, and decorations everywhere. Like we know when Christmas is about to happen, right? Okay, that's terrible priest humor, but that's... Anyway, maybe not it's... Maybe it's not exactly like that, but here's the point. The point is this. The Israelites knew exactly when the Passover feast was coming, and the Israelites knew exactly what the Passover feast meant. So if you were an Israelite, and as, and as best as we're able to put ourselves in those shoes, we can imagine how immediately their minds would travel back in time. And their minds would go back in time some 1,500 years 1,500 years. And they would remember how their ancestors lived in slavery in Egypt. And they would recall the many signs 